0: Welcome back to Bengal Bites, real, raw, unfiltered talk about the Cincinnati Bengals and the NFL. I'm your host, Derek. This is episode 7. This is the week 1 Browns versus Bengals recap episode. For reasons that will become obvious later, I think I'm going to title this one, Rain, Rain, Go Away. I apologize if you can hear rain in the background, but... It's raining for the first time in a long time here lately, and there's also construction going on next to my house, so if there's weird noises, I apologize, but I'm going to try to do my best to get this recorded. If you listened to the last episode, episode 6, the week 1 preview episode, I talked about how I was going to try to be more positive, upbeat, enthusiastic, and fun-loving about the NFL season kicking off and i wish this game would have been more accommodating to what i was looking for but unfortunately you know what like i said it's also a marathon we're not going to get too reactionary we're not going to we're not going to go all fire and brimstone and say fire the coach fire everybody get all new players we're going to keep it in perspective stay realistic and we're going to stay positive we're going to look for the silver lining wherever we can find one and believe it or not As bad as this game was, and it was bad, I will admit, it was real bad. We're going to take a measured, reasonable, logical approach, break down the game, and then we're going to move on. You know, it's a tough pill to swallow, week one, losing to the Browns, but in this podcast, I'm going to front load it with all the positive stuff right up front because I know a lot of the listeners you don't want to hear negative stuff you don't want to hear criticism you're just going to tune out right away so for all those people who are just going to tune out I'm going to put all the positive stuff right up front so stick with me hang with me a little bit and then if you're the type of person who's going to listen to the entire podcast anyway you're going to handle the negative so I'll put more of that negative stuff towards the end and you can listen then but just like that distance race If you watch the start of a a race, there's a lot of elbows. There's a lot of jockeying for position. People are being really rude and aggressive out there. You know, that's not Zach Taylor's style. You know, he's from Norman, Oklahoma, you know, just hang back a little bit. Let everybody else push out to the front, you know, and then that's when if you're like a racing fan or a cycling fan, you know, you just draft, draft in behind, conserve the energy. Let those other teams get out ahead, break the wind, not like, but, you know, let them, you know, break, cut through the wind for you. So just make it easier. Make your path that much easier. Just sneak in right behind them and then slingshot around at the end. They won't even see it coming. That's what we did last year. You know, everybody was just thinking we're on the way down. Oh, we're losing the first couple games. That's what we do. Then we just sneak in right behind, and then shoot around it. then win 12 games in a row. So even though this obviously was not the start we had hoped for, there are some positives we can take from this, and I'm gonna go through all of them. Then we're gonna do the typical game breakdown. I'm gonna go through everything that was interesting from the beginning, opening context of the game, opening kickoff, all the way through to the end of the game, And in detail step-by-step play-by-play and give you what I saw my analysis of the game without too much stats and we'll go through every interesting play in the game not every single play there's incomplete pass a run for two yards nobody really cares about that unless something interesting happened on the play then we'll cover it after we do the complete game breakdown I'll give you my overall thoughts and impressions for the game and Spoilers; those might be a little bit more negative so we'll save some of those for the end we'll also do a recap of how I did on my week one NFL game predictions how my predictions turned out compared to the results of the games and including Monday Night Football which was unbelievable that's an entire podcast in itself but we may cover that briefly and then we'll see I'm sure that's going to be a story to watch throughout the season so We'll touch on a little bit of Monday Night Football that just happened last night, but not too much about the other teams and the Jets right now. This is a bengals focus podcast, so let's start off focusing on the Bengals and things that were good. As we mentioned at the end of the last episode, the news broke that Joe Burrow's contract, they had agreed to the final terms, but we didn't get the details and there was no official signing ceremony, pen to paper, all that kind of stuff that they usually do. And it's important to keep everything in perspective. This is the week one recap. And in the grand scheme of things, forget about that game. Let's just pretend that that game didn't really happen. Not important. You know, no big deal. Let's, you know, just wipe that one from the memory banks for right now. The big picture, most important thing here is that Joe Burrow finalized and signed his contract, shook hands with Mike Brown. He looked him in the eye. He told Mike Brown he hopes next time it doesn't take so long. So... That's obviously Joe Burrow showing off his confidence. Of course, Mike Brown wants Joe Burrow to win some Super Bowls, so he probably told him, "Win some Lombardi trophies, and it won't take so long next time." That's how Tom Brady gets his contract signed immediately. But we got Joe Burrow signed for the next seven years. I think I misspoken last episode and said it was a five years, but he's going to be on top of his two years existing on his current rookie contract. It's going to extend it for another five more years. Those five years will be at an average of $55 million, but he's still got some remaining on his current deal. So it's really more like seven years, $44 million per year. But the way that they want to report it, of course, they want to make it sound like it's a better deal. And overall, Joe Burrow's deal is better than Justin Herbert's in pretty much every way. He's got more total money. He's got more guarantees. And that's really what Joe Burrow, I think, was looking for. He compares himself... Throughout his career to Justin Herbert, even going back to high school, even going back to high school and college, they were recruiting rivals, rivals in college, coming into the draft, who was going to be the better quarterback in the NFL, you know, because Justin Herbert obviously has the stronger arm than Joe Burrow, but Joe Burrow has better accuracy, better timing. Each quarterback has their own strengths. During Joe Burrow's press conference, I could even see him getting emotional when he was talking about his time at Ohio State not being able to play that entire time, and I felt like some of that was because he couldn't show what he could do. He was frustrated because he felt like his talents were going to waste that he knew that he had, but he wasn't able to put them on display. So he was working his butt off, and he finally got to show it off at LSU, so that's where, that's where it all came to fruition, and he said that all that time that he had spent at Ohio State was... Why he was the player he was today. He wouldn't change anything about his journey, even though there was frustration along the way. It got him to the place where he was today, which is signing this huge mega contract. So, if that's what he had to go through to get to that point, he said it was all worth it. During this entire press conference, they had for the media, they had Zach Taylor sitting up there next to Joe Burrow. And the first five minutes, they were asking Joe Burrow questions. And then it was like at one point, Somebody remembered, oh, Zach Taylor is still sitting up there. We haven't asked him any questions. So they asked him a couple questions. He said absolutely nothing of interest, as usual. And then they just immediately went back to asking Joe Burrow all the questions, which they should do. Nobody cares about Zack Taylor, what he has to say. This day was all about Joe Burrow. And it kind of puts into context where each person sits within the organization. I know Zach Taylor has a lot of loyalty to the franchise, and they have loyalty to him. There were a lot of people who were calling for Zach Taylor to be fired after his first season as a head coach, where he only won two games. They went 2-14 and 14 in his first season. And people were thinking, this is the new head coach? This is the offensive genius that we hired to turn this franchise around? I'm not so sure. But since the team has been to two back-to-back AFC championship games, they went to the Super Bowl two years ago, it's mostly the same roster, most of the same coaches, We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt in the long term. And we're going to have faith that they know what they're doing. And they're going to have similar results that they had in the past. One thing that was kind of cool about this was that Joe Burrow signed it on Saturday, September the 9th, which was 9-9. And he's number 9. So number 9, signing his new contract on 9-9. That was pretty cool. Probably just a coincidence. I'm sure... Joe Burrow would have signed it on any other day. I'm sure he doesn't care if it's 9-9 or any other day. It doesn't matter. He's not superstitious. Just give me the money, Mike Brown. It is a little bit odd that they waited until literally the day before the first game to sign it. You would think to have all that kind of attention on you, you would want to not have it immediately before the first game of the season. It would have been better if he could have had that out of the way at the beginning of training camp or during the summer. So, okay, we got the news, all the hoopla, all the excitement and the emotion is gone. Then you can just worry about playing football. But better late than never, I guess you'd say. It's better than like Justin Jefferson is playing his rookie contract without a new extension this season. So I know I made a joke last episode about how if he got the contract extension signed, maybe his calf would suddenly feel better. Obviously, that's not the case. He did have a serious calf injury that kept him out all of training camp. It wasn't just because he was holding out. Just by the fact that he signed the contract doesn't make him immediately healthier. He's still going to have to rehab his calf and come back to being 100%. But at least we know in the long term, Joe Burrow has got the security. Overall, I think the contract extension did accomplish what Joe Burrow set out to do, which was do what's best for all the parties involved. I think they made a great compromise in this deal. They say a good compromise is one where both parties are dissatisfied. In this case, I think both parties should be mostly satisfied. The owners of the Bengals, Mike Brown, the Blackburns, they should be satisfied that they got their franchise quarterback, who is a great player, great person, model citizen in the community, who didn't hold out, threaten to sit out, request a trade, anything like that. Didn't cause any drama with the situation, kept everything in-house, didn't say a word. From their perspective, they've got to love that they've got their quarterback for the future. From Joe Burrow's perspective, he got his long-term deal. He got a better deal than his nemesis, Justin Herbert. And now Joe Burrow doesn't have to worry about anything. He can just go back to doing what he loves, which is playing football and being amazing. And no, both sides didn't get everything they want. From Mike Brown's perspective, he had been talking about how he would prefer Burrow to do a Patrick Mahomes type deal. Patrick Mahomes got a 10-year, $450 million deal, which sounds great. But then you look at the deal and most of the money doesn't get paid until the last three or four years of the contract. The first few years of Patrick Mahomes' deal, he's not getting paid that much, and the end of it's not necessarily guaranteed. It's like, well, how good is this deal, really? And you're under contract for 10 years. You're not able to go back and renegotiate. Whereas in Joe Burrow's case, he signed a five-year extension, which is still pretty long, but it's not so long that he's not able to go back and get another bite at the apple, at the negotiation apple, because every year... Up until the pandemic year, the salary cap had been increasing. Now that the economic conditions have somewhat normalized, we expect the salary cap to continue increasing. Now it's $225 million for 2023. It could be over $300 million for the total salary cap in just a few seasons. So if you're somebody who's in that quarterback position where you could be negotiating for a huge salary... You want to be able to go back and renegotiate every now and then just to make sure you're keeping up with the market. You don't want to fall behind and get leapfrogged by other players at your position. That's kind of what's happening to Patrick Mahomes and his contract. Even though it looked great at the time he signed it, now other players are getting better, more lucrative contracts with more guarantees. As fans, all we need to know is that Joe Burrow is going to be under contract with the Cincinnati Bengals through 2029. So we can rest a little bit easier knowing we've got our franchise quarterback. So we got the contract signed. That was good. What else was good? Well, for football fans, real football is back. Week one in the NFL, finally back if you play fantasy football. Your fantasy football team is back, scoring real points. All the excitement of real, high-quality football is back. And we only get... 17 weeks and then the postseason so we have to really savor these moments don't take them for granted and we can't take for granted the fact that Bengals versus Browns is actually a big time matchup this year it was the top CBS game of the week for the one o'clock slot they had Ian Eagle and Charles Davis calling the game Evan Washburn on the sidelines doing the sideline reporting we've got The big-time crew, it's a big-time game. It has energy. It's got pop. So that's something we are not used to. Bengals-Browns was relegated to the third and fourth announce crew a lot of times. Nobody cared about this game. It wasn't a big story. It was kind of an afterthought. It was like, oh, yeah, Battle of Ohio, whatever, the toilet bowl over there. Now it's a real serious matchup. Two serious powerhouse teams that people have to respect. And I got lots of respect. For Ian Eagle, one of the best play-by-play announcers, I think Ian Eagle and Kevin Harlan might be my two favorites. Ian Eagle is going to call the next Final Four because Jim Nance has retired from doing that, so Ian Eagle is making his way up the broadcast. I like Ian Eagle. I like Charles Davis. Charles Davis, he's the announcer on Madden, so it's kind of weird. If you play Madden, it's like you're watching a Madden game, and it's like, man, this this video game is really realistic. He makes a lot of insights very smart insightful comments throughout the game a lot of the things that i'm noticing throughout the game charles davis is pointing out so it it makes me feel good as a casual fan when i see something and then charles davis says the same thing i'm like oh man i'm standing here in my boxer shorts in my living room and charles davis is getting paid millions of dollars to say the same thing that's why i'm making this podcast though we'll see maybe i'll get paid millions of dollars to stand in my living room in my boxer shorts We can only hope, right? But the other good news on the flip side, since this was a 1 p.m. game and not in primetime, not as many people saw the final outcome as there could have been if it was like on last Halloween when it was on primetime. It was a standalone game where everybody, all the eyeballs in the entire country, were watching us get beat. That didn't feel as good. So in this case is at least on 1 o'clock where it's a little bit hidden. You can kind of sneak it in under the radar. Maybe nobody was really, if they weren't paying attention, Bengals and Browns, what was that? I don't know what happened. What are you talking about? Another good thing, Joe Burrow being back on the field. We hadn't seen Joe Burrow playing football on the field all preseason, and we didn't even really see him in training camp. So even if he's not 100% healthy, which it didn't look like he really was, he's still better than Jake Browning or Trevor Simeon or any of these other backup quarterbacks that they had out there. Like, Joe Burrow on one leg or one and a half legs is still way better than Jake Browning. So, we just have to appreciate that fact. In the game, we also saw Jamar Chase. Even in tough conditions, he was still able to get production. It wasn't a ton of production, but it was hard-fought production. Jamar Chase showed up ready to play, and he made some comments that we'll get to about the Browns that gave him probably more incentive than usual to back up what he was talking about. We also saw Joe Mixon show up. He made a couple decent runs. He had a 22-yard run where he broke a couple tackles, got through the line of scrimmage, showed some good speed out in the open field. So Joe Mixon showed that he still has got a little youth in those legs. And on the defensive side of the ball, we saw a familiar face, Jermaine Pratt, number 57, the inside linebacker, playoff P, as he likes to be called. Jermaine Pratt is known for stripping the ball away, causing fumbles. In a ton of big games, he has caused fumbles at the last second that turned it around. I want to say it was the Patriots game. Was it Ramondre Stevenson, where it looked like the Patriots were going to go down last year and beat the Bengals and then... Jermaine Pratt stripped the ball away at the last second. Bengals got the ball back and won. In this game, we saw another Jermaine Pratt strip, and Bay Bayowouzie was right there to recover the fumble. The ball was just rolling around, and Cheeto jumped on it. So the defense causing turnovers, we love to see that because most teams who win the turnover battle in the game oftentimes win the game. It's not a guarantee, but if you win the turnover battle, you have a great chance. Along those same lines, second-year players Zach Carter and Dax Hill combined for another turnover. Number 95 Zach Carter was chasing Deshaun Watson outside of the pocket, put his hand up, and tipped a pass that went to the free safety number 23 Dax Hill for his first career interception. That was a great moment. that got the ball back, ended up giving Cincinnati a chance to score points in the game. That was a great feel-good moment in the game. We also saw lots of this year's rookies getting decent playing time. So we saw Zach Carter and Dax Hill, the second-year players, showing up big. The rookies, like Miles Murphy, DJ Turner, Charlie Jones, and even Andre Yosivasch got in for one play. That was good to see. The rookies get involved, get their taste of the NFL early. Like I said, the rookies, we're not expecting too much from them, but... We're going to need them down the stretch at the end of this year and going into next season. Another great positive coming out of this game is that so far there haven't been any reports of any major injuries. Zach Taylor, even after the game, said, you know, they're probably your typical nicks and bruises, but nothing major, nothing major report. So that's huge. As we said, it's a long season. The biggest Key to being able to go to the Super Bowl is keeping your most amount of star players healthy So as long as none of the Bengals best players got hurt in this first game, that's great We saw a number of key injuries throughout the league and we'll discuss some of those later But there are a lot of really good players who went down in the league and they're maybe out for the season And obviously that's not good for those teams So the fact that the Bengals were able to avoid that is a great plus plus. And hey the Steelers got beat by the 49ers by even more points than the Bengals lost by. So, you like seeing the Steelers lose, right? Plus, I talked about this ongoing dispute between Spectrum and Disney on the last episode. Well, hey, ESPN is back on Spectrum now, just in time for Monday Night Football, and what a crazy, insane up and down roller coaster game Monday Night Football was. More on that later. But the biggest positive probably is that we still have 16 more Bengals games at least to watch this year. We're hoping for more, a lot more, but we've still got a ton of games left to go this season. So don't jump ship yet. Hang with us all the way. It's going to be awesome. All right. I think that pretty much covers all of the positive aspects, all the silver linings I could think of. If I come up with any more throughout the course of the episode, I'll sprinkle those in. But it's kind of like you have to eat your vegetables before you get dessert. I did the opposite. I gave you the dessert before the vegetables because if I could give you too much vegetables right up front, nobody's going to listen. So I gave you all the sweet, positive, glowing stuff as I possibly could. Now let's get to the actual football game, which did not have a lot of positives to take away from it. But we're still going to do it. Gotta eat those vegetables to get big and strong. With all the positive stuff up front, out of the way, now we have to turn our attention to the actual week one game against the Browns, which did not have very much positive at all. Just to give you some indication, usually even if the Bengals lose a game, the Bengals will put their highlights from the game up on their YouTube channel of best of Bengals plays from the loss. In this game the Bengals did not put up any highlights. If they had put up a highlight package from this game, it would have been about two plays long. It would have been comically short. So they just didn't put up anything at all. So that just tells you how few and far between the good moments were in this game and how bad it really was. We went through the history between these two teams last episode about how Paul Brown started both of these teams. Originally, he started the Browns, then the Bengals in Cincinnati. And there's a rivalry, interstate rivalry between bragging rights in Ohio which team is the best professional team in the state. I got my neighbor across the street flying his Browns flag in the yard before the game every every time the Browns play, you know, he flies the Browns flag and people do that around here. The Browns are a big deal like I said I live in Browns country unfortunately so I have to deal with these people. Going into this 100th iteration, the Bengals still had the lead 52 to 47. Over the Browns. But recently they had been a bit of a thorn in the side of Zach Taylor and Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow was one and four overall in his career. He got a win last year, which was good, the second game of the season. And actually in that game, if you remember, that was one of the most amazing throws Joe Burrow has had in his career. He threw it to Jamar Chase in the back of the end zone and it just went through like three guys' hands. didn't even look like Jamar Chase was looking the ball just hit him in the hands and he almost was forced to catch it just out of reaction he didn't even know the ball was coming to him oh what touchdown oh okay but other than that game the Bengals have not had a lot of success Zach Taylor in his career was two and six against the Browns both Joe Burrow and Zach Taylor and Bengals in general recently have not fared well especially in Cleveland for whatever reason they had lost Five straight going into this game up in Cleveland, so not good. It's a tough way to start off your season going against one of your most bitter rivals. But for the players, like I said, they don't know anything about that. So somebody like Jamar Chase, who didn't grow up in Ohio, doesn't know anything about Browns versus Bengals, Battle of Ohio. He doesn't care. He's from Louisiana. He knew about the Saints and LSU and... It was funny when the part of the reason I love Jamar Chase so much is because when they drafted him, they had all these old, crusty Bengals beat writers reporters who have been covering the team for like 40 and 50 years. They're like, so Jamar Chase, what do you know about the Bengals franchise? What do you know about them? And Jamar Chase was like, I don't know anything about them. All I know is I'm going to break every single record they have. And from that moment on, I was like, yes, yes, I love you, Jamar Chase. That's exactly what I want don't care about any of this old franchise history just come in and smash every record and show everyone how amazing you are and that's exactly what he's done so far so big props to Jamar Chase but he doesn't care anything about Browns versus Bengals so when they asked him about this game he was like oh yeah we're about to play the Cleveland uh Browns I was about to call them the L's is what he said so that got out made the rounds on social media and all the media sphere talking heads were like oh jamar chase called the brown elves oh they're elves and then so they asked miles garrett about it and he was like oh that's disrespectful just kind of tongue-in-cheek he wasn't taking it seriously like he didn't really care but he was like oh you know that's kind of disrespectful he didn't have to call us elves but in jamar chase's defense you go and look at the field in cleveland they got elves plastered all over the place there's a big giant elf in the middle of the field the cleveland fan is voted for that to be their mascot and it's on every banner and poster everywhere in the stadium so they look like a bunch of elves don't get mad at jamar chase for calling you elves you're a bunch of elves okay Well, otherwise since it's the first game of the season nobody knows who's going to be good who's going to be bad there's really not much trash you can talk but we did see both teams were healthy for the most part denzel Ward, the starting cornerback for the browns was going to play in this game Joe Burrow was going to play in this game, so everybody's healthy at pretty much 100%. So I was all excited, pumped up, Sunday morning, watching the pregame shows, and then as soon as CBS cut to the game, my stomach just immediately sank, and my spirits were way lower, because the camera shot that they had was covered in rain droplets. And they were like, hello from Cleveland where it's a heavy rain. I'm like, oh, no, this is not good at all. Because if you know anything about the Bengals from last season, they were a very heavy passing offense. They were one of the top five offenses in the league, but one of the bottom five in terms of running the football. So their offense was not very balanced. It was very pass heavy they looked like they wanted to highlight Joe Burrow's strengths and they spread out the offense a lot. They went a lot of four and five wide spreading the teams out. When it rains for teams that are very reliant on the pass, that can be a problem. You really need to be able to rely on a strong running game if it starts raining very heavily because you're not going to be able to rely on the pass. Some people who maybe haven't played football or haven't thrown a football, caught a football, handled a football a lot in their lives, may underappreciate how much the rain and a waterlogged, totally damp football, how hard it is to handle one of those. Even though Charles Davis is calling the game, it's really not like Madden. In Madden, your quarterback's never going to have the ball like completely slip out of his hands or the guy is never going to slip on the grass because it's too wet. In Madden, those are things that they take out because it wouldn't be fun for the players, but it does happen in real life that you have to account for. In this dynamic, I mean, it's simple physics. I don't. This is a football podcast. I don't want to turn this into the science podcast, but from a physics perspective, if you're holding an object in your hand, the contact between the two objects is going to have what's called the friction force, or the coefficient of friction. And what happens when you add liquid like water or rain moisture between the two surfaces it acts as a lubricant and reduces the friction everybody knows what's like if you get out of the shower or you get out of the bathtub and you try to grab on anything it's just going to slip and fly out of your hands that's pretty much what it feels like to try to hold a football in a rainstorm it's like getting out of the shower and trying to grab something big it's just going to fly out of your hands it's especially critical for the quarterback to have a good grip on the ball It's almost like if you've played baseball for a baseball pitcher, the contact between the baseball pitcher's hands and the ball is obviously very important, but especially on the fingertips, because when the ball comes off of the fingertips, that's where you're able to apply the spin and rotation onto the ball that you're throwing. If the fingertips slip off of the ball, then it's not going to have any spin, and it's going to be like a knuckleball almost. It's going to just kind of fly through the air. So the the thrower or the pitcher will have much less control if their fingertips don't have good friction on the ball. That's why if it starts raining real hard in a baseball game, they'll immediately call off the game because you can't have pitchers with wet hands and wet baseballs trying to throw it 90 miles an hour at people. The ball's going to fly off into who knows where and it's just going to be bad for everybody. But especially for a quarterback like Joe Burrow, who doesn't have especially big hands and he doesn't have especially long fingers so he said you know coming out of the draft he made a joke about oh no i guess i gotta retire now i got small hands because his hands only measured nine inches from the end of his thumb to the tip of his pinky and that's a little bit i mean that is below average like joe burrow is six foot four and he's got nine inch hands joe burrow's hands for his height are probably a little bit below average So that's just going to make it naturally a little bit more difficult to hold, grip, throw onto the ball in any conditions, but especially if the ball is wet. If you've never tried throwing a football, I don't think a lot of people would appreciate it, but they call a wet ball drill, is how you practice to throw a wet football. Throwing a wet football and throwing a dry football are completely different things. If you kind of want to know what it's like, what you have to do is, I wouldn't recommend this because it's probably going to damage and ruin your football, but... What they do is they take a football and a five-gallon jug of water, fill it up with water, and then dunk the football underneath the water. And don't just dunk it in for like 10 seconds or 30 seconds. You have to leave the football there for at least an hour so that all the water seeps into the leather, it penetrates into the material, and it gets really waterlogged and it gets really heavy and unable to be dried off. Sometimes if you get a light rain, you can just take a dry towel wipe off the surface of the ball and it's no problem but when you leave it in the bucket that simulates a ongoing rain throughout an entire game where the ball no matter how many times you wipe it off the towel no matter how dry the towel is it doesn't matter the ball is just gonna be wet heavy slippery and there's no way to get rid of that moisture when the ball gets like that I mean it's hard for everybody to deal with the center who's snapping the ball the quarterback who's trying to throw the ball the receivers who are catching the ball, and even the referees who are trying to pass the ball and mark it. But basically, throwing a wet football kind of feels like throwing a beach ball. That's about how good your control over it's going to be. And in general, Joe Burrow doesn't have big hands, and he doesn't have great arm strength. We know he doesn't throw with a lot of power, but his superpower is timing, anticipation, accuracy, getting the ball where it needs to be, when it needs to be there. He's great at pre-snap reading the defense. I love watching Joe Burrow's eyes before the snap. Sometimes when I watch Joe Burrow's eyes, they they zoom in on him before the snap. It's like watching Mike Singletary play linebacker for the Chicago Bears back in the day. He had those crazy eyes. It's almost like that watching Joe Burrow. He's got these eyes. You can see his mind is just going a million miles a second thinking about what he's gonna do, where the ball is gonna go next. So that is what is great. That's what makes Joe Burrow great. It's not necessarily his arm strength, and that's not the end-all, be-all. You don't necessarily have to throw it through a brick wall to be a successful quarterback. There's lots of guys who have really strong arms, but it's not all about who can throw the football the best. And I'm not trying to make too many excuses. Obviously, both teams had to play under these conditions. Deshaun Watson, Joe Burrow, all the Browns and Bengals receivers, everybody had to play and deal with these same circumstances. So, it's not an excuse, but it's just the reality. If anybody is confused or doesn't know, you know, a lot of these nerds are going to be looking at the stats and be like, "Oh my goodness, Joe Burrow had the worst statistical game of his career. I can't believe it. What has happened? What went wrong?" Well, it's like, "Well, if you would open up your eyeballs and look at the screen, you could see there is like an inch of rain coming down every hour. So, it's going to be very difficult <laughs> like I played football in college in New Jersey, in the East Coast, uh, New York City, Philadelphia area, the tri-state area, where it seems like rainstorms can just last for weeks. It's not even like five days in a row. It's like, how long? It's just, When does it stop? It never stops. Rain nonstop. So it's miserable to play in conditions like that. I know we've had games. I know we had games. I don't even know if we threw it 10 times for the entire game. Maybe we threw it like 12 times and completed you know, five or six of them. In conditions like that, it's just impossible to throw. You can't do it. That was just the reality of this game right from the start, and that was really what made me not optimistic because the Browns, we know, have traditionally had the much stronger running game. They have just run it through the Bengals' defense without a whole lot of resistance. So it's going to be a matter of who could run it better, I thought. So with all that set up out of the way, let's get into the actual game itself and go through this. From the opening kickoff, we actually saw one of the best plays for the Bengals of the entire game. Chris Evans took the ball for a 27-yard return all the way out to the Bengals 35. So, pretty good starting position, you know, considering that a touchback would have been at the 25. So, plus 10 in terms of field position over a touchback. Unfortunately, it things took an immediate turn for the worse right after that because the first play by the Bengals, I don't know what the plan was, I was very confused by this. They went out with their 11 personnel. 11 personnel means one running back, one tight end, three receivers. They came out with Irv Smith lined up directly behind Orlando Brown, Brown as the left tackle, kind of in like a somewhat of like a fullback position. And then Joe Mixon was off to Joe Burrow's right. And they basically did a fake handoff From shotgun to then throw a quick pass. For whatever reason, they decided on this pass play, they're going to leave the right defensive end completely unblocked. So Jonah Williams wasn't going to block that guy. I guess they thought he was going to react to the run fake to Joe Mixon and follow him instead of going for the passer. But Zadarius Smith, number 99, didn't fall for the run fake at all. And completely had a free shot on Joe Burrow. So the first play of the game, Joe Burrow doesn't even have time to throw a pass before he's getting hit. It's like, oh my goodness, what are we doing here? I guess luckily it just went incomplete. Second play, they went to a swing pass to Joe Mixon in motion off to the right side, to the flat. This is Joe Burrow's second pass attempt, and this one was kind of a knuckleball where... It didn't spiral to Joe Mixon. It looked like almost like he was throwing a shot put, and it just kind of knuckleball went out to Joe Mixon. He caught it, but it was way behind. It was way late. So not looking good for Joe Burrow throwing the ball in the first two plays. After the short gain by Mixon, this brings up third and nine, and this is actually one of the few third-down conversions the Bengals were able to pick up in the game. Joe Burrow short pass out to the left to Jamar Chase, He's able to catch and get a couple extra yards and pick up the first down before he goes out of bound. Decent protection. It looked like Miles Garrett was causing Orlando Brown some trouble, but he got in the way enough. He kind of got bull rushed a little bit, but Miles Garrett is going to cause problems for anybody. I don't care if you're Orlando Brown or who you are. After they pick up the first down, Bengals try one of their old trusty plays from the preseason, the back shoulder fade along the left sideline. However, I don't know if there was some kind of a miscommunication or Jamar Chase just didn't see the ball come out, but the ball was behind even where Jamar Chase was running his route so much that the Cleveland defensive back actually, he caught the ball, he was standing out of bounds, so it wouldn't have been an interception, but the defensive back was in better position for the back shoulder fade than Jamar Chase. So when these announcers were talking about, oh, back shoulder fade, impossible. It's like, well, I think Cleveland studied up on the Bengals' back shoulder fade plans And they looked like they were well-prepared for all kinds of fades. I don't think the Bengals completed a single fade ball in this game. They tried back shoulder fades, over the shoulder fades, up top fades. No fades were getting completed by the Bengals at all. So the Browns were well-prepared. Speaking of being prepared, I also noticed on this, when the Bengals were huddling up on third down, they showed a picture down the sidelines. They showed Jim Schwartz, the... Brown's new defensive coordinator, he was lined up with Joe Burrow anywhere he went. He was really studying him very intently. You can see he was kind of checking out Joe Burrow, see how he was moving, how he was able to get around in the pocket with his calf muscle being strained. And like I said, he's had a lot of time to study the Bengals, their tendencies, what they want to do. Even though the Bengals, it's good on the one hand of, have consistency in terms of their players, their coaching staff, all the team that was there when they had success the last couple years is back. On the other hand, it risks stagnation and other teams can adapt and figure out what you've been doing and figure out new ways to counter it. So that was one of the things I was worried about. Is Jim Schwartz and this Browns team, given the familiarity that they have with the Bengals and their schemes, are they going to come up with some new wrinkles and some new counters that could? cause the Bengals problems and and require them to come up with their own adaptations you can't do it necessarily in one game they couldn't fix it but I think throughout the course of the season we'll see much more competitive football team second and 10 Chris Evans picks up a nice game about five five or six but that was one of the few running plays that actually worked that brings up third and five at the Cleveland 47 Whereas Miles Garrett had been lining up mostly at the right defensive end position. On this play, he lined up pretty much at middle linebacker. So he was standing up directly over Ted Karras, number 64, the center. And he almost looked like he was mimicking a basketball player, dribbling a basketball back and forth in between his legs. He was kind of like going, moving his feet side to side, Kind of like saying like, oh, you don't know if I'm going to the left, to the right, which way I'm going to go. But it looked like he was coming in off the blitz. And that's exactly what he did. He went one way and kind of faked to the left, went to the right, right around Ted Karras. And Ted Karras one-on-one against Miles Garrett on third and five, it's pretty much worst case scenario. That's not what you want. So they ended up getting the sack on Joe Burrow and Bengals ended up having to punt. They got a decent punt to the Browns' 14. It was a fair catch, so no return. You'd like to get it maybe inside the 10 if you want to be greedy, but inside the 20 is good. Browns get the ball back on their 14, still early in the first quarter. They have short run, incomplete pass, and then third and seven, They had the one element that the Bengals did not have, which was Deshaun Watson was able to use his legs and run and pick up the first down. Bengals, their first drive, they got a first down on third and long by throwing it to Jamar Chase. Browns got their first down by Deshaun Watson running, and that was the advantage they had. He still, even though neither quarterback could really throw in the heavy rain, both teams had that disadvantage. Deshaun Watson still had his legs, whereas Joe Burrow, his calf obviously was not 100% in this game. In a lot of situations where he would have been able to escape the blitz and get out and make a play, scrambling around, throwing the ball to the open receiver, he just wasn't able to have the same mobility. We saw him a few times look like maybe he wanted to scramble, but he would just like throw the ball into the dirt or throw it away. He did not want to run. You could tell, maybe they told him before the game, like, if you're getting into a situation where you have to scramble, just throw it away and protect yourself. Didn't look like he wanted to, Joe Burrow wanted to scramble at all. So Deshaun Watson had the distinct advantage in that he was able to make plays with his legs. After the Browns get the first down, they've got first and 10 around their 30, and Bengals get home on a sack. They're able to send a, both linebackers, number 55 Logan Wilson and number 57 Jermaine Pratt, come in on a delayed linebacker blitz up the middle. And they're able to get him down, get Deshaun Watson, the quarterback for the Browns, down for a sack. After a short gain to Nick Chubb, third and 10, Bengals are able to sack Deshaun Watson again. So two sacks by the Bengals in a span of three plays. This time it was B.J. Hill was able to hold on to just an ankle, just enough to bring him down and get the sack to force the Browns to punt. Good job by the defense forcing a punt. Browns punt the ball away, and there the Browns punter, Bajorquez. He gets like a monster punt. It forces Charlie Jones all the way back inside the Bengals 10 yard line. So it's like a 66 yard punt. He gets Charlie Jones gets maybe like a eight yard return, so he gets it out to about the Bengals 15 or 14 yard line. Still not a great starting position. So the field position game, still back and forth and it's still 0-0. On the Bengals' second drive, they start off with a short run to the left with Joe Mixon for about three yards. Second down, they throw a screen pass, but again, it's kind of weird. Joe Burrow, he, I mean, it's effective, but he kind of shot puts the ball. It's not really a throw, but I guess he's just thinking he doesn't have confidence in his grip, so he just needs to get the ball however he can get it there to Joe Mixon. doesn't matter if he throws it underhand, overhand, sidearm, whatever it is. Just get it to where it needs to be. He's kind of playing almost like basketball point guard in there. He's just like pushing the ball at the receivers. He's not really throwing it. Now this brings up third and one, third and short. The pass goes out to the right flat, Irv Smith Jr. He didn't get a whole lot of depth. He pretty much just went straight down the line. So he wasn't, if he would have caught it, it still wasn't 100% sure he would have gained the first down. He still would have had to move upfield and get extra yardage. But he didn't catch the pass. He got his hands up and the ball just went straight through him. It hit him in the hands and squirted up into the air and went out of bounds. And it was a catchable pass. He should have caught it. But again, when the weather is so wet like this, it's very easy for the ball to just slip out of your hands. I know people will say, oh, these receivers are professionals and they're wearing gloves, and it's like they have flypaper on their hands. They should just catch everything. Well, that's not really realistic, and that shows a lack of experience actually wearing some of these gloves because although they are very effective and they seem very sticky when it's dry, when it gets wet, they have almost the opposite effect of what you want. They are even more slick and more slippery than just your bare hands. So you saw Irv Smith Jr. later on in the game He just threw his gloves off and just like threw them onto the sidelines because he didn't even want them anymore. You saw a number of players do that throughout the game where it starts raining really hard. You just got to get the gloves off and go barehanded. So since they didn't convert the third down, Bengals end up having to punt. Brad Robbins gets off a 45-yard punt with about a 4-yard return, so net of 41. Browns take over at their own 41-yard line. Whereas the Cleveland kicker had a 65-yard punt, Brad Robbins had a 45-yard punt. So we're basically 20 yards of gross punting less than the Browns. Even though the score is still 0-0 at this point, we're starting to lose the field position battle. When the Browns take over on their second drive, CBS sideline announcer Evan Washburn comes in and reminds the crowd that The conditions on the field are very challenging for everyone, including the pass catchers, anybody who has to handle the ball. So quarterback, wide receiver, running back, all those types of positions. So the Browns continue their drive. They're able to pick up a first down, Nick Chubb, a couple first downs with Nick Chubb and Deshaun Watson, mostly scrambling, running around, short passes. But then on second and five at the Bengals' 21-yard line, when it looks like the Browns are getting close to scoring position. Jermaine Pratt comes in and strips out the ball from the Cleveland running back forward, number 34. And the Bengals are able to recover it by number 22, Bay Awuzie. No gain for the Bengals on the return. They get it at their 13-yard line. Watching the fumble live, I thought maybe Cheetah would have an opportunity to return it and get some extra yards on the scoop. But he made the wise decision. It's the first game back from his torn ACL from last year. And it's on a slick, slippery surface. He made the wise decision just to fall on top of it, secure the ball, make sure he had possession of it, didn't try to do anything crazy. Good job by Cheeto getting the ball. Bengals take over with about 3.5 minutes left in the first quarter. Still 0-0. On first and 10, Joe Mixon, number 28, picks up about 3 yards to the right tackle. This is kind of the story, it's all of the run plays that the Bengals are running basically are default draw plays because they're running everything out of shotgun with Joe Burrow, quarterback number nine, standing about five to six yards behind the center, Ted Karras, number 64, who's snapping the ball to him. Joe Mixon's usually on the right or left of Joe Burrow's hip. And I took note of this, and it seemed like the Bengals ran every play 100% of their plays from shotgun which isn't totally out of ordinary for the Bengals they do tend to run everything out of shotgun but I wasn't sure if it was because they wanted to make sure Joe Burrow didn't have to move too much like if he had gone under center he would have had to take more steps backwards so it probably would have put more stress on his calf if they would have gone under shotgun but I think some of their running plays would have been a little bit quicker to hit if he could have gone under center instead of having to snap the ball out of shotgun. All the runs were just kind of a little bit slow to develop, slow-moving kind of draw plays just by default. That brings up second and seven. Burrow goes back to pass, looks around, doesn't like his options. He decides to go to Irv Smith out in the right flat, and probably the one of the worst passes of Joe Burrow's day the ball just flies out of his hands, not even close to Irv Smith, off into the sidelines. So he clearly did not have any control of the ball, no accuracy. It was just a misthrow, a misfire completely. So at this point, we're thinking, wow, this was, should have been a totally easy completion. Joe Burrow makes this throw in his sleep, no problem. So something is off. We're, we know that he's not able to throw with the accurate consistency that we expect. So at this point, there's alarm bells going off like, wait a minute, the whole offense is based around the pass, and he can't even make a simple pass, and it's looking real ugly, so we need to figure out something quick. That brings up third and seven, Joe Burrow completes the pass to Tyler Boyd over the middle for six yards, comes up one yard short of the first down, and on this pass, Joe Burrow, he gets enough on it, but the best way I could kind of describe it is it looks like he's throwing a paper airplane instead of a football. He's kind of trying to push it and guide it out, but he's not really able to come over the top and kind of do his typical over-the-top whipping motion with his hand. It's more like he's throwing it out there like a paper airplane. He doesn't get it enough zip and the ball comes up. Bengals have to punt again. Fourth and one, Brad Robbins gets off the 41-yard punt, Donovan Peoples-Jones gets a 6-yard return, so Cleveland takes over at their 43. A net of about 35 yards, so not really changing the field position too much with the punting game. Browns take over at their own 43. couple of good run and a pass play to Nick Chubb gets a, another Cleveland first down. Then Deshaun Watson, on a scramble, is able to find Amari Cooper over the middle. This was one of the few on-time, on-target passes Deshaun Watson was able to complete in this first half where it hit Amari Cooper pretty much in the numbers. But the field at this point had gotten so wet that Amari Cooper's feet kind of slipped out from under him and he was down on the play, clutching at his knee, kind of rubbing his knee. So you're thinking, does he have some kind of serious knee injury? I'm sure Browns fans were super concerned about that. He was able to come back shortly into this game i'll have to actually follow up and see if it's anything it didn't seem like it's any anything too serious because he was able to complete the game but you never know when these guys are out there on the field the adrenaline is still pumping they may be able to complete the game and then when they get back in the locker room and they get examined by the doctors it may be something a little bit more serious so keep an eye on that but he did make the catch and gain 20 yards so it went down to the bengals 24 at that point After that pass, Bengals defense was able to stand up, get a stop, and force the Browns into just a field goal. It's 3-0 Browns just at the beginning of the second quarter. This kicked off a brutal stretch of plays for the Bengals. So after the field goal, Bengals receive the kickoff. Chris Evans takes it from one yard deep in the end zone, goes for the return, which is fine, but unfortunately he only gets a return Of 18 yards out to the 17. Instead of a touchback on the kickoff to the 25 yard line, they're taking over from their own 17 yard line. Then two ugly incomplete passes from Joe Burrow. He's again not able to get any grip on the ball. He tries to throw it out to the left to Joe Mixon, doesn't get anything on it. It looks like the ball just slips out of his hand and is incomplete. Another pass across the middle to Tyler Boyd where he's even even worse than on the last drive the ball is late it's behind him it lets the defensive back jump in and break it up so after that second pass to tyler Boyd over the middle falls incomplete that's four or five passes in a row from joe burrow that have been completely off target uncharacteristically and you got to think obviously we're panicking as fans the coaches are probably saying what's going on here and joe burrow himself He's probably losing confidence in his own ability because, he, like I said, he relies so much on precision and timing and accuracy and anticipation. And when it's so wet and everything is coated in water, it's impossible for him to do those things. At this point, I'm sure even Joe Burrow is getting frustrated with the situation, and he probably feels something, he probably feels like it's almost like he's throwing just a handful of sand. He can't get any grip or any control of the ball at all. That brings up 3rd and 10. It ends up being a delay of game penalty, but they got the snap off. Burrow catches it, and he steps up into the pocket before they blow the whistle, and he looks like he's going to try to scramble and get out of the pocket and run, but when he's moving, you can just tell he's not 100%. He lo- It looks more like a jog than a guy who's taking off sprinting down the field, and he ends up just kind of spiking the ball or he tries to spike the ball after they blow the whistle but even then the ball like comes out of his hand it just kind of squirts out it's not even a good spike that he throws after that he took like a couple more steps and then just fell flat on his back like a sack of potatoes and it's just like oh god like it was just an ugly play so it really made me think maybe he was trying to just not take any extra steps not move his calf more than he needed to. Zach Taylor later said that he was late calling in the play for the 3rd and 10, so they get the delay of game penalty. 3rd and 15, Bengals don't pick up the first down. Chris Evans gets about 7 yards, half the yards they need, so they end up punting again. Brad Robbins, punting from their own 19, he gets off a 37-yard punt that goes out of bounds. Again, not much distance on the Brad Robbins punts. No returns, which is good, but he's not really booming it. Cleveland takes over at their own 44-yard line, again with good field position. Luckily for the Bengals, the Browns aren't able to do much on this possession either. They get a holding penalty on 1st and 10, so that sets them back to 1st and 17. They get a short run, then an incomplete pass, and the biggest thing that happened on this drive was The Browns' all-pro starting right tackle Jack Conklin injured his knee on the play, and it looked like a bad injury right away. He was not able to move his leg at all. They had to get the cart out to stretcher him off the field, and it looks like he's going to have a torn ACL and be out for the season. So that was really unfortunate to see. You don't want to see any player get hurt. With Jack Conklin out at right tackle for the Browns, that means their rookie fourth-round pick, Juan Jones, the 6'8", 375-pound giant from Ohio State, is going to come in and see his first action. On third and long, the Browns try to test Cam Taylor Britt deep again with Marquise Goodwin, and Cam Taylor Britt is able to catch up. The ball is a little bit underthrown. Marquise Goodwin has that kind of world-class track speed that he's able to get behind most cornerbacks in the NFL But Cam Taylor-Britt does a good job of making up the ground, coming back, and breaking up the ball before it can be a big play. The Browns end up having to punt no points for them. Bengals take over with about 12 minutes to go in the second quarter after the Browns punt it out of bounds to about the 20-yard line. First and 10, Joe Mixon does a great job on first down of running hard, running over guys, breaking tackles, picks up the first down, This is actually the Bengals' first first down in the game since the first drive. Before this, they had gone three drives in a row, going three plays without getting first down, so three and out. The very next play, handoff to the right side to Joe Mixon. He's able to do kind of a Nick Chubb impression. He breaks through the line of scrimmage, gets to the second level, makes the safety miss, and he's able to get 22 yards before he gets pushed out of bounds. So Joe Mixon was showing great burst, great vision to see that crease in the line of scrimmage where he could kind of sneak through there and then being able to pick up his knees and avoid the low tackle from the safety coming in. At this point, we're getting two first down off of the first two plays of the drive. You're thinking, okay, now something's rolling. We got a little something going here. Unfortunately, after those two first down runs by Joe Mixon, he got subbed in for travion williams and this is the first time we had seen travion we hadn't seen travion in action in the preseason at all he had sprained his ankle so he comes in first play they give him a handoff up the middle and i don't know if he likes it looked like he slipped on brownie the elf i don't know if the paint was too thick or whatever but he got the ball and immediately slipped and fell flat on his face not what you want to see. He got up before anybody touched him, and he got, like, one or two yards. But I think his brain got ahead of his feet a little bit and didn't realize. And it was the first play he had really been in, in the game, so maybe he was just a little bit overexcited. But, he, yeah, just slip and fell flat in his face. He did pick up about five yards on the next play, so it was third and three. Bengals tried to throw a deep left to T. Higgins, didn't end up completing it, so they had to settle for a punt. This brought up a very strange part in the game because the Bengals, this was their first one of their first opportunities they had in Brown's territory. They had it at about the 38 or the 39 yard line. Fourth and three is a little bit too far to kick a field goal. It would have been about a 57 yard field goal. So that in the wet conditions, that's pretty far, even for Evan McPherson to expect him to make it. So I understand not going for the field goal, but punting there is pretty strange. Obviously, they're playing for the positional game because like they've been saying, Ian Eagle was pointing out, Brad Robbins doesn't really have the strongest leg. So his punts are not going that far to flip the field position, but he's supposed to be a good hang time directional punter. In this instance however worst case scenario happens his punt goes one yard too far into the end zone for a touchback. It's a 38 yard punt officially but because of the touchback the net is only 18 yards. I think in hindsight you would have much preferred to have gone for it even as bad as the offense was given the fact they were still down three to nothing at that point. It was still a close game. They had the opportunity to score some points if they got another first down so I think, in hindsight, I hope you would have a little bit more confidence in your offense to try to get it done on fourth and three. So, when the Browns take over at the 20-yard line, they get another first down on some more Nick Chubb running. It's becoming a theme. No surprise there, Nick Chubb. They start, at some point in the first half, they start putting up the graphic about how many yards Nick Chubb has compared to how many yards the Bengals' total offense has, and obviously... Nick Chubb is ahead of the Bengals, and he will stay ahead of the Bengals all day, unfortunately. But luckily, Deshaun Watson throws a worm burner. He kind of skips the ball to his receiver across the middle. That was a theme in a lot of Deshaun Watson's passes. They were low, hitting about five feet in front of the receiver's feet and having no opportunity to catch the ball. So that was kind of the theme all day for him he had some incomplete passes in this drive that led to another Browns punt now this was kind of a rookie moment for Charlie Jones he got the punt on the left sideline about at the 10 yard line and he ran to the right and then he juked and then cut back across to the middle of the field and he kept going to the right and farther to the right and there was Browns guys chasing him the whole way He never found the corner, they call it. He never got the angle to turn the corner and break it upfield to start gaining yards. So the entire time he was going completely horizontal to the line of scrimmage, gaining no yards, he ran about 50 or 60 yards total to gain one yard on the punt return. So Charlie Jones is going to have to figure out the guys in the NFL are a lot faster than he thinks they are, and he might not be as fast as he thinks he is. He's, if you remember Tim Dwight from way back in the day, Tim Dwight was like a hundred meter sprinter champion from Iowa who went on to have a long career in the NFL as a punt returner. And Tim Dwight had the top end speed where he could hit the corner, go around guys and break it for the touchdown. I don't think Charlie Jones has that kind of Tim Dwight speed. On top of the short return by Charlie Jones, they also had an illegal block out of bounds penalty by number 35 Jalen Davis on the gunner for the Browns. So that moved the ball back even further for the Bengals. They had to start on their own five-yard line. They got a few yards from Joe Mixon. Jamar Chase got seven tough yards on a short pass to the right where he broke a few tackles and got a block from T. Higgins. But then on third and one, the Bengals were not able to convert the first down and pick it up. Run up the middle from Joe Mixon. And again, from the shotgun, it takes just that little half second longer for the play to develop, that let Dalvin Tomlinson, the Browns' new defensive tackle, number 94, he's a big run-stuffing defensive tackle. He's 330-some pounds. So he came in and pretty much just pushed Jonah Williams back into the backfield. Jonah Williams, you know, he's not the biggest offensive lineman in the world. He's susceptible to bigger guys bull rushing him. That's what happened in this situation. Jonah got blown up off the ball into the backfield, kind of disrupted everything. Joe Mixon, the Browns also sent linebacker blitz up the middle on a run blitz. So Browns are sending extra guys to stop the run. They didn't bite on the Jamar Chase motion out to the left. It wouldn't have mattered anyway because the Bengals had a penalty. They had somebody lined up incorrectly. One of the tight ends was covered up by the receiver. So it would have been a penalty either way if Bengals had a punt. This ended up being... Brad Robbins' best punt of the day, 54 yards, no return. And the Bengals' defense ended up forcing the Browns into a three and out. Bengals get the ball back with 2.07 left to go in the second quarter, three timeouts, and they're only down by three points. And the score is still only Browns three, Bengals nothing. So they're still in the game, plenty of time, plenty of timeouts. You're thinking, okay, let's try to get a score before halftime. Maybe we can tie this up or even take the lead. Unfortunately, after a short run on first down, Bengals got a penalty on second down for another illegal formation. And this is starting to get frustrating. Even though it's first game, you got to say, you know, they've been in training camp, they've been doing this long enough. You shouldn't get these type of procedural penalties. They get to third and 8, and then there was just kind of a misread or a miscommunication between T Higgins and Joe Burrow. T Higgins stopped his route short. Joe Burrow threw it deep. Nobody was there. Nobody was home. So it was just like Joe Burrow kind of looked like, hey, what are you, what's going on? Well, I thought you were supposed to go to the sideline for the fade, basically, and, and T. Higgins broke it off short. Browns get the ball back with just about a minute and a half left and all their timeouts. Elijah Moore goes around the right end, and then he breaks it back to the left for the Browns for a 19-yard run. So they get first down again. Then the rest of this drive, you got to give credit to Deshaun Watson. He made a couple of good throws, especially there was one throw out to the right sideline where the Bengals were playing in cover three, meaning they have three deep defenders. Cheeto was playing on the deep right. Mike Hilton was playing in the short underneath right. And Deshaun Watson somehow fit the ball just over the top of Mike Hilton and just in front of Cheeto to be able to get the first down. Tough throw, especially in those conditions. I'm surprised he could fit it in there. One of the reasons I could tell that this was cover three was because I could hear from the boom mic, the Browns sideline, the bench, was yelling, three, three. And sometimes you hear a bench will yell, run or pass, to let the defense know whether it's run or pass. And occasionally, if it's a screen, you'll hear people yell, screen, screen. So I thought that E sound, I thought it was like screen, but it wasn't a screen. I think it was people yelling three, three, like Bengals are in cover three, which if you've got your bench yelling out what coverage the other team is in, that's high level from the bench. And maybe Bengals need to disguise their coverages a little bit better from the start. So you don't have people yelling out what coverage you're in. I don't know how helpful that really is. I mean, it's such a small split second for the somebody to yell out what the coverage is. I don't know if he can really react to that as a player on the field. Browns ended up scoring a touchdown on this drive on a 13-yard design run from Deshaun Watson to the left where they did quad rece- four receivers to the right to get the Bengals' eyes all looking to the right side, and then they just did a quarterback sneak to the left with Amari Cooper blocking off Cam Taylor-Britt sealing off the left side. Deshaun Watson could pretty much just walk into the end zone because Trey Hendrickson was doing his typical pass rush aggressively upfield. They know that that's where Trey Hendrickson likes to go, so they can cut up inside of Trey Hendrickson. He doesn't get contained very well a lot of times, so they can kind of count on that. Went up inside Trey Hendrickson and outside of Can Taylor Britt. Dax Hill from his free safety spot wasn't able to get over and make the tackle in time to stop Deshaun Watson, so that was a pretty easy, easy touchdown. But Bengals defense has been overall doing a pretty good job of stopping the Browns and keeping them to only 10 points in the first half. It's just that the offense has been so ineffective and so inept. They're not holding up their end of bargain. You can't win any games with zero points. So at halftime, it's Browns 10, Bengals nothing. You're thinking Bengals have not really done much. I think they had maybe three first downs in the first half, maybe two. It wasn't wasn't very many, so they needed to figure out something fast. We did see at some point Joe Burrow put on a light gray glove. It looked like kind of an old school receiver Newman glove. So that was the first time we saw Joe Burrow wearing a glove on his throwing hand. And he had a little bit better results. It looked like he got a little bit better grip, but still wasn't the typical Joe Burrow throwing motion that we're accustomed to seeing. After halftime, Browns got the ball. Bengals ended up getting another sack. Trey Hendrickson got the Bengals' third sack of the game. So they were able to force a three and out and punt by the Browns, getting the ball back right away. And the Bengals got fortunate where the Browns' punt was kind of a shank, only went 30 yards out of bounds. They got good field position for their first drive of the second half. Bengals get the ball down 10 points with 13 minutes left to go in the third quarter. There's another miscommunication between Burrow and T. Higgins. This time it's the reverse where Higgins is going deep and Burrow thinks he's supposed to cut it off short, so the ball goes out of bounds. Burrow is again looking at T. Higgins like, what are you doing? After the game, T. Higgins said it was his fault. He took responsibility. Of course he's going to say that when Joe Burrow just signed that $275 million contract. Of course he's going to take all the blame and do everything he can do to make his quarterback look good on this drive Bengals get one of their most successful plays which was actually a penalty on the Browns they got pass interference Jamar Chase was going deep down the right sideline for a pass from Burrow and Denzel Ward tugged at his jersey just enough to draw the defensive pass interference so they get the first down one of the few first downs they were able to get on the day came by a penalty so 18 yards take it any way you can get it after the penalty, the Bengals take over at the Browns thirty two yard line. A couple incomplete passes brings up third and ten. On this third and ten, Cordell Volson, number sixty-seven, the left guard. He gets completely bull rushed and put on his back by Dalvin Tomlinson. This is the second third down that Dalvin Tomlinson has blown up the Bengals chances. He did it to Jonah Williams and now he's bull rushing Cordell Volson. Seems like the Bengals are having trouble containing Dalvin Tomlinson on these third downs even with the pressure up the middle Burrow is able to roll out to his right and find Irv Smith Jr. picks up eight yards but he's short of the first down so Bengals have to settle for a 42 yard field goal which is good and that makes Bengals three Browns ten at that point you're thinking okay 12 minutes left still a one score game they're only down by one touchdown still in the game still possible to come back But unfortunately, after the Browns receive the kickoff, their first play is a long pass to Elijah Moore. He picks up 33 yards deep over the middle, first down at the Bengals' 42. It's already looking like, oh man, Browns are going to score points here again. But a couple plays later, Deshaun Watson is rolling out to his left. He tries to throw a pass to Elijah Moore, but Zach Carter ends up getting his hand on it, tipping it, so that Dax Hill is able to intercept it. It goes right to Dax Hill, and he catches it and gets tackled. But that's his first career interception. Big moment for two second-year players. Both those guys were drafted by the Bengals last year. Dax Hill in the first round, Zach Carter out of Florida in the third round. Good to see them combining for a big play, big turnover. That's the second turnover that the Bengals' defense forced. So they're giving the ball back to the offense And the offense, to their credit, didn't have any turnovers, no fumbles, no interceptions. They just weren't able to convert those turnovers into points. After the Dax Hill interception, Bengals get the ball back. They lose three yards on a running play by Joe Mixon where they try to pull Ted Karras. I don't know about pulling Ted Karras. Didn't end up working very well. They gain some yards back on a short pass play to Joe Mixon, kind of a screen. And then third and three, Jamar Chase was able to get the first down by catching the ball on the right sideline and then just reaching out his hands, knowing where the first down marker is, extending it out before he gets hit to get just enough yardage to gain the first down. First downs were hard to come by in this game. A couple plays later, third and five, seven minutes left in the third quarter. Bengals get the matchup they want. They get a safety guarding T. Higgins out of the slot. And T. Higgins basically runs the fade that Trenton Irwin ran against the Falcons, where he's running to the front pylon corner of the end zone. They get the ball where they want it. It's just that Grant Delpit, the safety, gets his hands up and blocks the pass away before T. Higgins. He makes a great play. You know, T. Higgins was in the right position. Joe Burrow threw a pretty good pass. They had good enough pass protection. It's just sometimes the other team makes a good play. And that was a critical play because if the Bengals had caught that, it would have probably tied up the game 10-10. So the fact that they didn't get that was kind of a big turning point in the game, especially because right after that they went for the 51-yard field goal and Edmund McPherson missed it. It didn't really have the right direction. He had the distance, but it was too far to the right and it never looked like it was on the line. So unfortunately, that interception by Dax Hill doesn't turn into any points, and it's still Bengals 3, Cleveland 10. After the Bengals missed field goal, the Browns take over, and their drives composed pretty much of a lot of Deshaun Watson-designed runs, and Nick Chubb runs, and Elijah Moore runs. A lot of heavy running game, as you would expect. That's one of the big advantages that the Browns had over the Bengals in this game was just in general, their running game was a lot stronger. And they had the option of using these designed runs with Deshaun Watson. Any of the scrambles that Joe Burrow was trying to do, he was not doing any design runs. He wasn't doing any running at all. It looked like he did not want to run unless it was absolutely to avoid getting hit and just to save his life. Self-preservation. It wasn't to try to get any yards. The Browns had the advantage in terms of just strategy and what they could do. But also... In general, probably the Browns have the stronger running offensive line, run-blocking offensive line. Bengals, they're more pass-oriented. Their offensive linemen are probably a little bit better at pass-blocking than they are run-blocking. But the Browns did end up getting a field goal to make it 13-3 to Browns. After the field goal, Bengals get the ball back, and they get one first down on a pass to Jamar Chase, but... That's pretty much it. Their drive stalls out. They can't do anything with it, end up having to punt. Which brings up the start of the fourth quarter. Browns 13, Bengals 3. To start off this fourth quarter, Brad Robbins' tough day continues. He bobbles the snap from Cal Adamitis. And it throws off his timing enough where he kind of shanks the punt. It goes off the side of his foot, out of bounds. And he only gets 22 yards on the punt. So the Browns start off in great field position to start the fourth quarter. They got a couple of first downs throwing to their tight ends, David Njoku and Harrison Bryant, and even their running back, Jerome Ford, number 34, got a first down and he got involved. They, again, the defense prevented them from scoring a touchdown. So they'll give up first downs. The Bengals defense will give up yards. They'll give up first downs. Other teams don't get in the end zone too much. So the Bengals defense is able to hold them to a field goal again. It's Brown 16, Bengals 3. Bengals take over. They're down 16-3 with about 12 minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And they have, at this point, six first downs in the entire game. One of them came off of that defensive pass interference penalty. And from this point on in the game, they do not get any more first downs at all. So they have six first downs, and they end the game with six first downs. They don't do anything on offense after this. They end up getting fourth and four on their own 31-yard line. And now they decide to go for it. When they had the ball inside Cleveland's territory, fourth and three at the Cleveland 38, they didn't go for it. Now it's late in the game. They're down by two touchdowns, basically. They're getting desperate. It's still 10 and a half minutes left to go in the fourth quarter. I mean, they've come back from more than that, but... I guess like they are feeling like they got to do something, got to get something started here. So they try to go for it. Unfortunately, it turns into a sack, a big sack that takes them all the way back to their own 18-yard line and gives the ball to Cleveland right in front of their own doorstep. That gives Cleveland an easy opportunity to just walk in for the touchdown, makes it 24 to three. And at that point, all of a sudden the game is out of reach. Probably not a wise decision to go for it at that point. But I guess I understand... I mean, you can you can always argue one way or the other why they did something, but you would probably have wanted to reverse those decisions in hindsight. On that fourth down play, the player who got the sack was Miles Garrett, coming off of the Bengals' right edge. He was going up against Jonah Williams, and they also had Travion Williams, the running back, number 32, doing a little bit of a chip block on Miles Garrett. But unfortunately, two players are not enough to block Miles Garrett sometimes. He basically just split in between Jonah and Travion, went past both of them and sacked Joe Burrow in the backfield before Joe Burrow could do anything with it, and he's not going to be able to get away from Miles Garrett with a bum calf. They were done for at that point. So the Bengals got the ball back down 21 points and still about nine minutes to go left in the fourth quarter. The announcers were noticing how the Bengals didn't seem to be any kind of hurry up offense modes, the fact that Joe Burrow was still even out there playing in the game must have meant that they still just wanted to get him, get him some more practice reps or get him something something going with the offense. They did try one deep pass to Jamar Chase down the left sideline, and it looked like it just went through Jamar Chase's hands. He had his hands up, and they hit him in the hands. looked like the ball just went through his gloves. That's one of those situations where I think the gloves were at that point in the game. It's the end of the game. He's been playing all game. They're slippery, and the ball's wet, and at that point, I can totally understand where it's almost like trying to grab a fish, like a wet fish This just like slides right out of your hands. It's all slimy and scaly, and you can't do anything about it. Burrow's last drive, the Bengals ended up having to punt anyway, like they've been doing all day. So Brad Robbins is getting a workout. Browns don't do much with the ball. They punt it back. At this point in the game, the Bengals have clearly given up all hope, and they put Jake Browning in the game just to finish it out. This is Jake Browning's first NFL action. He's never played any games before. He's always been on the practice squad or as a backup, but this is his first real live time getting in a game. So he comes in, gets one incomplete pass, gets sacked, and they have to put the ball away, as you would expect. At this point in the game, the CBS announcers are really doing anything they can to fill time. They're talking about how many touchdown passes Jake Browning threw in high school, his senior year. Apparently he had like 92 touchdowns his senior year in high school, which sounds ridiculous, but they also mentioned Andre Yosivash got on the field from Princeton, the wide receiver. He was out there for one play, I think. I think the only play he went in on, he went in and had to block a defensive tackle who was like 300 pounds, and then he came back off the field. It was funny to see the wide receivers coach Troy Walters just kind of had a smile on his face when he came out, like, "Wow, that, that was your one, your first And only play in the NFL and you had to block a defensive tackle. Like, that's a tough way to earn a living as a 205-pound wide receiver, blocking defensive tackles that outweigh you by 100 pounds. So hopefully Andre can get a little bit more action when the situation and the scenario is more suited for his skills. But it was just back-and-forth punts until time ran out in the game. Nothing really exciting happened after that game-ended 24-3 Browns win. So that loss takes Zach Taylor's record against the Browns to 2-7 in his coaching career. Joe Burrow is 1-5 in his quarterback career against the Browns. Both of them are winless in Cleveland. I think the last win in Cleveland was Marvin Lewis. Taking a look at some of the final statistics, this is over on ESPN.com and CBS Sports The Browns outgained the Bengals in terms of total yards, 350 to 142. The Browns got more than double the amount of yards the Bengals did. The Browns also got 21 first downs compared to the Bengals' six. The Browns got three times as many first downs as the Bengals did. The Browns ran 72 plays compared to the Bengals' 54 plays. And the Browns averaged just under five yards per play the Bengals averaged just over two and a half yards per play. Basically, the Browns were on average getting double the amount of yards per play that the Bengals got. Big discrepancy in the offensive performance between the two teams. That was the story of the game. The Bengals defense actually played well enough to win the game. It's just that the Bengals special teams and the Bengals offense especially didn't hold up their end of the deal. Bengals didn't have too many penalties. It was pretty clean in that regard. They only had four penalties for 20 yards, whereas the Browns had five penalties for 43 yards, including that one 18-yard defensive pass interference penalty. In terms of sack yardage, Joe Burrow only got sacked twice. They were costly, including that one on fourth and four that basically sealed the game for the Browns, but he was able to get rid of the ball He definitely was not holding on to it like he would normally and kind of scramble around. He was getting rid of the ball, and when he did scramble, he was not looking to throw down the field. He was trying to get it within 5 to 10 yards, like the nearest dump off he could. He wasn't looking for like 30 or 40 yards down the field for deep shots. After the game, Zach Taylor wanted to point to the fact that they were only 2 of 15 on third downs, which definitely is not a good conversion rate. You've got to be closer to 50-50 on the third down conversions, but part of that had to do with the fact that the Bengals were constantly in third and long. It's hard to convert when you're always in third and seven plus, third and seven, third and ten. Those kind of distances are hard to convert. In terms of individual statistics, obviously not a good day for Joe Burrow whatsoever. He was 14 of 31 passing for only 82 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions, two sacks, QBR of 20 on the ESPN scale and a quarterback passer rating of 52. So well below Joe Burrow's standard, but you have to consider the rain in this game. Deshaun Watson on the other end, not a whole lot better, honestly. 16 of 29 for 154 yards, one touchdown, one interception, one interception, three sacks. A better QBR mostly because he was able to run. Deshaun Watson had five carries for 45 yards. Joe Burrow had one carry for negative yards. In terms of yardage, Deshaun Watson had about 200 total yards. Joe Burrow only really output 82 yards. Part of that has to do with handling the rain conditions and the grip on the ball, and a lot of that has to do with the mobility factor. Deshaun Watson, like we said, extremely mobile quarterback. That's what gave him the huge advantage over Joe Burrow in this one. Joe Burrow is normally a pretty mobile quarterback, but today he looked like a Tom Brady out there. But it's not all Joe Burrow, it's not all Deshaun Watson, it's not all about the quarterbacks. At the same time, Nick Chubb outgained Joe Mixon pretty much 2-1. to one. Nick Chubb had 18 carries for 106 yards, 5.9 yards per carry. Joe Mixon had 13 carries for 56 yards, 4.3 yards per carry. That's actually a little bit better than Joe Mixon did last year, but only 13 carries he wasn't able to get that much going just because the rest of the offense couldn't sustain anything. Maybe the most troubling part about this is that the Bengals didn't really have anything besides Joe Mixon. Chris Evans and Travion Williams combined for 19 yards on four carries. So I'm still not quite sure what the plan is for the Bengals in terms of a backup third down running back. They were even saying it on the broadcast. Who's going to be the Bengals third down running back? Is it Joe Mixon? Is it Chris Evans? Is it Travion? Chase Brown was not in uniform for this game. He was inactive, so it's not him. We still don't know after this game. In terms of receiving, neither team had a receiver get more than 45 yards. The highest yardage any receiver got in the entire game was 43 yards by Elijah Moore of the Browns. Amari Cooper had 37 yards on three catches. Jamar Chase was the leader for the Bengals, 39 yards on five catches, long of 12. T Higgins, eight targets, no catches. So T got shut out. That's a surprise. He was getting a lot of balls on deep fades down the sidelines that normally you'd expect T to be able to go up and get, like an alley-oop pass to the basket. But just in this game, they just weren't able to connect. 0 for 8 for T, that you don't want to see that, especially as T is going into a contract year where he was not able to reach an agreement and sign an extension like Joe Burrow. T is going to be playing on his last year of his rookie deal. So he needs to have some better games to get an extension. 0 for 8 isn't going to cut it. Three catches for 17 yards, both from running back Joe Mixon and tight end Irv Smith Jr. That was both of them got five targets. Irv Smith was a little bit involved, but not an amazing start. I mean, nobody really had an amazing start, so whatever. On the defensive side, Jermaine Pratt and Nick Scott both led the team with 11 tackles apiece. Jermaine Pratt had seven solo tackles, one sack, and two tackles for loss and a QB hit. Jermaine Pratt had an outstanding game, and he forced the fumble on that first quarter. Nick Scott, he looked like he was going in for a lot of kill shots. I think Nick Scott, he may have a lot of big hits throughout the season, but he may also miss some tackles, because it looks like, kind of like against that preseason game against the Falcons, he may have a tendency to drop his eyes when he goes to lower the shoulder on players and land a big hit Hopefully Nick Scott is able to create some turnovers with the big hits this season. Logan Wilson, 8 tackles total. Sam Hubbard, 8 tackles total. Overall, the defense played pretty well. That one touchdown where the Bengals went forward and forth and gave it to the Browns right at the 18-yard line, I don't really count that against them. And, and they did create two turnovers. They won the turnover battle. They gave up some yards, but not that many points. In terms of field goal kicking, Evan McPherson was 1-for-2. He did miss that long from 50, but he made one from 42. And the Browns kicker Dustin Hopkins, he was 3-for-3 on field goals with a long of 43. He did not try any from 50-plus. And then in terms of the punting game, we definitely lost that one. Browns, I mean, Corey Bojorquez is known as having one of the stronger legs in terms of punters in the NFL. He had seven punts for 47.3 yards and three inside the 20 with no touchbacks, the long of 66. Brad Robbins had 10 punts, average of 40.9, one touchback that was very costly where we were at the 38-yard line and he kicked a touchback, so a net of 18, and got two out of the 10 inside the 20 with a long of 54. So on average, Brad was punting about six yards per punt shorter than the Browns, so losing six yards every time we punt and try to get field position. Obviously, the weather wasn't ideal for kicking or throwing or doing anything with the ball, so we would definitely expect Brad to improve on his average going forward. Still, though, it doesn't look like Brad has that strong of a leg, but hopefully he can get more inside the 20 directional, not do the touchbacks like he did. After the game in the post-game press conference, Zach Taylor went out of his way to not criticize Joe Burrow at all. They asked him, What did you see out of Joe out of there? And he said, Oh, I saw some good things. So when Joe Burrow came in, the reporters told him that Coach Taylor said he saw some good things out of the offense and his play that day. They what did he think about that? And Joe Burrow was just like, I don't know what he's talking about. I have no idea what could have been good out there. Not much. And that was true. Like there's an old cliche that nothing is ever as good as you think or as bad as you think when you go back and watch it on tape the next day but in this case I don't know that that's true when I watch when I went back and watched the tape of this game the next day somehow it got even worse than I thought it was like it was bad in the moment it was it felt bad when I watched the game live and then when I watched the replay it got even worse. it was just ugly like nothing was good about that. I don't know what Zach Taylor was talking about. He saw some good stuff. There was not a whole lot of good out there. Like Maybe Jamar Chase playing hard, Joe Mixon making some good runs. There was a few good plays, but few and far between. They kept talking about how they missed their opportunities. There were not that many opportunities. Maybe a few opportunities, but not that many. We also heard Joe Burrow talk about how he basically said that they were not prepared well enough for this big rainstorm and that next time they'll be better prepared and know how to handle it better. Which was a little bit surprising to me. I mean, I didn't check the weather. I didn't know that it was going to be a rainy day at Cleveland when the before the game started. But you got to think that the Bengals had some idea of the weather forecast going into it. They should have known that there was a chance of some rain and had some kind of a plan for what if it rains. I mean, Zach Taylor on Monday, the day after the game, he said that, you know, they are a pass-heavy team and they pride themselves on passing the ball and this was the worst rain game he'd been a part of in his 10 years in the league, which all may be true, but more than having pride in your passing game, you need to have pride in winning the game. And if you're not able to pass the ball because of rain, you can't just go out there and say, well, I guess we lost it, rain. I mean, rain is going to happen. You play in the AFC North where all four of the teams in the AFC North have outdoor stadiums. So weather is going to be a factor. Wind, snow, rain, sleet, hail, all of it could come into play at some point. And it could be in the playoffs when it really matters. And you can't just throw up your hands and not have any plan and say, well, I guess they got us. We can't pass. Unfortunately, on Sunday, that's kind of what it felt like. It felt like the Bengals thought they could just run their typical offense. We'll just go out here. Joe Bro is going to throw it for 400 yards. Jamar Chase is going to have about three touchdowns through the air and we'll just do everything like we always do. But obviously that wasn't the case. They needed to have some kind of a contingency plan, backup plan, and they need to not rely exclusively on the pass. They need to have balance in the offense. They need to be able to run the ball if they need to in situations that call for running. In this game, when they really needed to run, they weren't able to. And that's why they lost And during the Monday conference, the reporters did ask Zach Taylor if he and Brian Callahan had called the plays and structured the offense in a way to minimize how much Joe Burrow would expose himself to injury on that calf, try to minimize his movement and scrambling. And they did kind of, he, Zach Taylor said, not in so many words, but he was basically like, we had a plan for managing Joe going into it. So basically, yes, they were planning on him being Somewhat immobile, which is concerning because that means that they're saying Joe Burrow injured is better than Jake Browning at 100% health. I think that's what Jamar Chase was referring to when he said, We don't need Joe Burrow back in week one. We need him back for the playoffs in the long run. So it's okay if he comes back week five. And everybody obviously didn't want him to sit out the first four weeks. A large part of it, probably even Joe Burrow, was thinking, man, if I sit out the first four weeks, we might go 0-4 with Jake Browning as the quarterback. So if Joe Burrow doesn't play, they're going to lose every game. If he does play, they might still lose, and he might risk injuring himself even further. So it's really too bad that we don't have a better option at backup quarterback to let Joe Burrow just sit a couple of games, get back to 100% health. He's obviously not 100% healthy And as we go further into the season, if he's not able to move, hopefully it doesn't take a toll on him where he's taking shots to the body and, and getting injured. We don't want to see that. I mean, who else is out there? Like, can Tom Brady come back? Cam Newton? What do we got? Carson Wentz? I mean, he's still a free agent, right? Something. I don't know. I mean, maybe Will Greer. Who knows? He's got that beard. You know, it looks like a good beard, so put him out there. Who knows? Then after the game, in the post-game interviews, Jamar Chase said, it's frustrating because I called him some elves and we just lost to some elves. So he said he was pissing himself for that. He you know He's probably mad that he made it a story to begin with, but that's going to be a thing. I beat those elves now. So we'll have to see. We don't see the Browns again until week 17. It's kind of weird. They're bookends. We start the season with the Browns and end the season with the Browns. By the time we get to week 17, the team rosters could be completely different. You know, they could have trades, people could get injured, different things could happen. So you never know who's going to be on the team, who's playing in the game by then. On the one hand, you know, you want to be tough and be like, oh, I wish we could play those guys again next week, show them what we could really do. But on the other hand, it's like, well, maybe we need to recollect, think about what we did for a while and then we'll see them later. Then we'll know what's up. In the post-game interview, when Burrow was talking about how the rain, they weren't really prepared for it, I was trying to think, has Burrow played in the rain? I couldn't think of any rain games that I've seen him play in. We know he played in the snow, but as Zach Taylor pointed out, snow and rain are two completely different things. Have you ever seen Man vs. Wild with Bear Grylls? When he tries to go submerge himself in one of those Arctic lakes, or cross the river, as soon as you get out and you're in sub-zero degree temperatures, you got to get out, rub the snow all over your body to take that moisture away. So when you're playing in those snow games, it's not as nearly as damp and as wet as it is in the rain. Snow can actually take some of the moisture away. In that Bills playoff game, Bro did okay. We have seen him struggle with high wind games. I remember there was a game a couple of years ago where... The Browns, I think it was the Browns and Bengals, and it was Windy and Baker Mayfield and Joe Burrow were both struggling with the wind, but Burrow especially, you know, he was throwing too many ducks, so he really had to work on getting his spin and tight spirals. And he does throw tight spirals for the most part to cut it through the wind, even though he doesn't have like super arm strength. He's able to cut it through the wind most of the time, but those can affect him. And obviously the rain really affects Joe Burrow more than he was expecting, And so I went back and I tried to find anything. And then I remembered there was this clip of Joe Burrow talking to Chris Sims. It was at the start of the 2022 season. So it was about a year ago, I want to say. And he was describing how he likes to hold the ball, his grip, what he likes to do with his footwork and going into a lot of details. And they actually covered what he does in the rain. And listen, I am Joe Burrow's biggest fan. I support Joe Burrow more than anybody probably in the world so don't call me a joe burrow hater right now i don't like doing this but i gotta play this clip because it's really interesting this is joe burrow talking about what his plan was going to be for a rain game any thoughts that go through your mind when you're talking to like wet ball i got to play a game in the rain do you do you adjust the grip or grip it lighter or harder or anything when you do that yeah i have uh a little secret for the rain that okay. I think I have figured out and I don't know if anybody else does, so I'm gonna keep that one to myself. Okay, all right, cool. But I like maybe it. I'll tell you afterwards. All right, fine. You definitely gotta think about it if it's windy, if it's dry. Yeah. You're gonna hold the ball differently and throw it differently depending on right. the elements outside. I always had to grip it a little less. Not yeah. that I was Joe Burrow or played as much as you did, but I gripped it less when it was wet and I felt like Definitely grip it a little less. You a little less, right? Because right? yeah. you get scared to like squeeze out of your hand if it's too wet, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I know you can't see Joe Burrow's face in that clip when he was saying that, but he had a real confident, assured look on his face that whatever he had, whatever secret sauce he had for the rain was going to work. So whatever that was, he needs to go back to the drawing board on that one because it clearly was not working out how he was expecting it to. And then just to make this weekend even worse, uh, former Bengals standout cornerback and punt returner Pac-Man Jones was arrested at the Cincinnati airport for, among other things, being drunk and disorderly and threatening people. Typical Pac-Man Jones stuff. But as always, we will assume he is innocent until proven guilty, which in Pac-Man's case, it's becoming harder and harder to do so because with subsequent arrests, It's really difficult to believe this is all just a coincidence. (laughs) But hey, Pac-Man is a grown adult. He can make his own decisions and get arrested if he wants to. All right, let's quickly run through the week one pick results of all the games that I had in week one. The games that I got correct, I got the Falcons over the Panthers, Jacksonville over Indianapolis, Saints over the Titans, 49ers over the Steelers Commanders over Cardinals The Ravens over the Texans Eagles over the Patriots And I actually got Jets over Bills And then the games I got wrong were I missed the Lions beating the Chiefs I missed the Browns over the Bengals I missed Bucks over the Vikings Packers over Bears Raiders over Broncos Dolphins over Chargers, Rams over Seahawks, and my biggest miss by far was Cowboys beating the pants off the Giants 40 to nothing on Sunday Night Football. So overall, that made me 8-8. Eight eight. 16 games, I got half of them right, so 50%. We'll see if I can do any better than that in the subsequent weeks when I have more of a better idea of how good all the teams are. Hitting some of the quick headlines from a a few of the other games, we saw the Ravens lose J.K. Dobbins. They're starting running back for the season with a torn Achilles tendon. The Ravens also lost a couple other players on their defensive and offensive lines and defensive backfield. The Browns, as we know, lost their right tackle Jack Conklin for the year with the torn ACL. Cameron Hayward, the defensive tackle for the Steelers, has a groin injury he might miss a few weeks. And the Chiefs' Chris Jones ended his holdout. He agreed to a contract with more incentives built into it. So he didn't get a flat-out raise, but he got the opportunity to earn more money by getting more incentives into his contract. So he's coming back for the Chiefs pretty soon, probably this week. And then we talked about Monday Night Football and the Jets versus the Bills, the big game. That was actually... You knew that Disney and Spectrum were going to come to an agreement because of this game. It's this huge matchup. Aaron Rodgers, first game in New York City, playing on 9-11. They had to have this game back on the air, and they did, and unfortunately, they got it back on the air just in time for Aaron Rodgers to blow out his Achilles tendon on the first drive, the fourth snap of the game. He got sacked. They got new turf at MetLife, but still, the turf, it got him. It got his Achilles. They had to cart him off the field. Horrible scene in MetLife. All these fans, you know, everybody's there wearing their number eight Aaron Rodgers jersey in the stands. Like, this is it. This is finally the year that we go to the Super Bowl. And then immediately their dreams are just crushed. It's like, oh, no, it's all over. Zach Wilson comes in, throws an interception. It's like, oh, my God, this is all over. But, but the Jets' defense was so strong. They got three interceptions. Jordan Whitehead for the Jets got three interceptions in the same game. Crazy game. Crazy game went to overtime, there is the Bills banking field goals off of the uprights to go in. It ended on a walk-off punt return for a touchdown in overtime by one of the undrafted free agents who emerged as one of the stars on HBO's Hard Knocks series this year. So that was incredible to see this guy that we kind of all saw on Hard Knocks then making this play to win the game in front of national TV when all hope was lost for the Jets. He brought it back to life. So the Jets, they're 1-0. They still got hope, even though they lost Aaron Rodgers for the season. It, who knows? You never know. But there's a good chance Aaron Rodgers' career is over. That's a tough injury when you're 39 going on 40 to come back from a torn Achilles in your first game. Obviously, you know, his body is not what it once was. So if that is the last game of Aaron Rodgers' career, that's a real tough way to go out. But hey, what has he got? Like $75 million guaranteed from that. So I think he'll be okay. From the Jets fan perspective, they may have won the battle, but they may end up losing the war. If they don't have Aaron Rodgers for the rest of the season, that defense is going to have a tough hill to climb. It's going to be hard to come up with three sacks and three turnovers every single game. So as Bengals fans, we have to keep that in perspective. It could always be worse. We could always be the Jets. So just be happy that Joe Burrow is still Happy. He's still healthy. He's still secure under contract. He's not out for the season. And even though he's maybe not a hundred percent, I'll take seventy-five percent Joe Burrow over a lot of other quarterbacks in the league. So just remember, don't lose hope. Stay with me. Stay with us the entire season. We're gonna come back next episode, and we're gonna do a week two preview when the Baltimore Ravens are gonna come and kick off the season at Paycor Stadium. It's gonna be the first. Home game for the Bengals. So, hopefully, being back at home, hopefully, it doesn't rain. We can get a little bit better performance out of the team, a little bit better, more exciting episode next week. So, I'm glad to have all the new listeners that have joined us for the start of this season. So, thanks for coming along. I see all the different platforms, all kinds of different devices. So, thanks. Hello to all the new listeners. Stay with me, follow, subscribe, send in your questions. This will be more fun if you interact and I can shout you out on the show. Again, just remember, even though this is bad and it stings, terrible football is still better than no football at all, and we still have to appreciate it for what it is. So as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm going to leave you with a who day and stay hungry for more Bengal Bites. <laughs>